it is my it is my privilege uh, to be able to introduce uh, our speakers for this morning. Um, I read this book a little while ago. It's uh, it's called Wanted, and uh, just. Just to give you a hint on that one, it's all about the different ways that God is, is radically pursuing his people wherever they may be found and whoever they may be. It's an awesome story. You can find out more about that at the, at the table in the back. Uh, this morning, though, I get to introduce Chris Hoke and Ninas Garcia. Uh, these guys met, while well, one of them, it'll be obvious which one in just a minute, is the self-described dorky white guy who felt uh, God's calling to, for him to pursue the, the people lost and locked away in prison, even in solitary confinement. He met and started corresponding with somebody, Niners Garcia, and together these two guys became friends, became partners in ministry, and these two guys co-founded a ministry now called Underground Ministries, and we're so pumped to hear what God is up to now. So please welcome Chris Hoke and Niners Garcia. Thanks, dude. Is this all right if I bring my coffee up here? All right, cool. Well, we're from the Northwest, and we've got a little bit of an addiction issue up there. So I'm glad to to know that we share uh, that crutch. Um, I work with folks that society doesn't want. I work with folks who are thrown away, that are not even recycled very well, that are just thrown in landfills. And I wanted to start with a little bit of my story about how I got from uh, an evangelical culture and church in Southern California to uh, being pretty addicted to getting into the human landfills we've made and inviting the church to go in there as well. And that maybe much of what Jesus imagined in the world of God, the kingdom of God, might be found in those landfills. And I want to invite you guys to think about ways to get there as well. Uh, so I grew up in, in Southern California in an evangelical church, and one of the things about being in these churches, and by the way, I did a lot of it. I, my grandparents were missionaries, my parents were into missions, and I would say I was a bit over-churched. Would anyone here relate to that word? Okay, a few more chuckles in the first service, so maybe, maybe those are the folks that sleep in a little more. Um, so yeah, Sundays, Wednesdays, Tuesdays, family devotions, quiet time, uh, things in the bathroom that have like cross-stitched verses above the toilet. Um, you get to know people by saying like, oh, hi, you know, I'm so-and-so. What church do you go to? My dad still asks people that. I'm like, dad, they're not even Christians. Like, hi, what church do you go to? So, overchurched. Um, one of the things about growing up in an overchurch environment is you hear the invitation a lot. Now, who this morning feels a call? Who wants to follow Jesus? I invite you to raise your hand. You guys ever heard that? Oh, she wants to. All right, come on up. Um, I heard that a lot. And thankfully, a lot, I heard a lot of the good stuff. And some of the best stuff, I think, is in the red letters. Uh, bless the people that changed the font color in some of those Bibles. Because that's the good stuff. And this is where God incarnate actually speaks for himself, not mediated through a prophet. And this Jesus was always doing the coolest stuff. He was hanging out with the outcasts, tax collectors, the prostitutes, folks who I was not allowed to hanging out with growing up myself. So there was a bit of a tension there in this overchurched upbringing, is my parents loved me so much in the environment, the childcare, the, the youth group, the, um, the summer camps. Uh, it was such a protected, loving, safe environment, but it was kind of a bubble. And inside that bubble, we're constantly reading about this Jesus who got slaughtered and executed for hanging out outside the bubble so much. And so when they said, who wants to follow him? I thought, yeah, I'm getting out of the bubble. 
And the, but the, normally the invitation was come back next Sunday, be a good boy, essentially how to be a good high school student, do honors classes, go to a uh, Christian college, participate in the youth group. I was a worship leader. And so the invitation always was a, was a loop to come back into the church cycle. But I was looking to break out of that loop and follow this Jesus who was mysterious and dangerous and beautiful to me. And so I, I mean, I can look back with a 36-year-old mind and see that, but I was just feeling the tension growing up. I was feeling a gnawing hunger of, yeah, I, I, I want to follow this Jesus, but I want more, but I didn't know how to get there. I didn't know how to get to the cross. There was normally these big crosses hanging to the services, but I knew, because if you think about it, and you're sitting there in church and you've heard the sermon lots of times, so you start just reading through passages yourself, and you start, remember, wait, this was a, the cross was a, an execution instrument. This was not a religious symbol. But we don't have crosses today. So instead of like, oh, meet Jesus at the cross. Come today, let's meet Jesus. Let's go to the cross with this. You guys heard this kind of language? Well, what does that mean, meet Jesus at the cross? Meet him at the electric chair? How do I get there? I want to meet Jesus. I really, really do. And so it, it, it makes sense that you, you, you give an over-church kid this imagination. Eventually, I'm going to find myself in a jail cell. And so years later, I found myself in the Northwest because I wanted to study theology, but I didn't want to go to the, the ivory tower because I had already been to college. And I, I was itchy to get to the Jesus stuff that I was studied so much in undergrad. But luckily, I found this guy that was... Uh, working with undocumented migrant farm workers in Northwest Washington. And we can, oh, there you go. Uh, in the Skagit Valley. And also with, um, with folks in jail. And he was a THD in Old Testament. In, um, but his seminary was a jail. And I thought, that's it. That's the seminary I want to go to. To read the Bible in context. To read Jesus' words in context with the kind of people Jesus was hanging out with most of the time when he said those words in the first place. You with me? All right. So... I went to the jail for myself. I went there to f connect with Jesus. I went there to figure out what my, I believed. Um, and because I know whenever I asked these questions, they'd start fights at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Anyone had that experience? You're not trying to trash the church. You're just trying to ask some questions. And sometimes you're like, all right, this is not the place to ask questions. And so most of my friends just stopped being Christians. Um, but the jail is, the, is where my faith uh, was resurrected. And because I was with people that had questions too, and man, did they have colorful language. These guys had some beautiful language, and it just <laughs> delighted me. Because I would have been kicked out of every Thanksgiving dinner table I was at for saying one of these words. And they said them not angrily. They said them with joy. They said them with, with, with sass and with class. Like there's this one guy that was um, in the jail, they set up the plastic chairs in a circle, and there's, there's no podium, there's no sound, there's no cool lighting but the acoustics are really cool in the jail. If you bring a guitar and you sing in there, it's mm, good reverb. Um, sitting in this circle, there was this one Bible study where a guy named Joey, he was a gang member and he had tattoo, he had like a big clown, like diamond over his eye, tattoos all over his neck. And he was sitting on the edge of his chair and his, and his butt was hanging off because he had just been stabbed in the butt uh, a few days earlier. He had this huge gauze pad and his pants were kind of down, but he wanted to come to church. We knew each other. And he's sitting there just all forlorn on the edge of a chair. And there's another guy, older white guy with a mustache, and he, he brought one of those thick Bibles. You know, he, he was a Bible guy. And I was trying to facilitate a conversation about something Jesus was saying. And this guy kept cutting in, not even on topic, and just be like, you know what? 
all we need is the word, brother. We just need the word, brother. What you gotta be in the word, and just be edified by the word, don't we? And he looked at the other guys in the, in the group, they were just like, they're looking to me like, so is this, is this like the, the student that models what your religion's about? And a lot of times I'm not sure what to do, but my faith, my fellowship came about with guys like Joey who was sitting over there and he just looked up and he said, man, shut the f- up to this guy. And the guy was just kind of stopped and he looked at me like he's gonna get kicked out, right? And I'm just smiling at this guy. And he says, go ahead, Chris. So I go back to that church. Um, because there, I felt safe there, and I felt that we are safe to be ourselves, and we don't have to put on a religious mask. And that was my salvation coming out of the uh, kind of mask industry. Um, because I, I myself was a pretty, um, pretty depressed. I was suicidal in college. My dad was aggressive in the home growing up, but no one talked about it. We put on the perfect face and the Christmas cards. My best friend hung himself in his own closet across the street in our manicured lawn, beautiful suburb. We didn't talk about these things. So being into the jail is where the subtext, much of the true self in my own life could come out. And it was with these guys that were my age, that were angry and looking for friendship and fellowship and asking good questions about Jesus. And they knew how to recruit. They knew how to lay down their lives for one another. They knew how to not comply with the larger Roman or American empire and be about another kingdom. It was just with a gang. I thought, man, these guys can teach me about discipleship. I just, and I want to teach them more about Jesus. Maybe we can learn from one another. So one of those guys, his name was Neeners, and he was the leader of, of a gang in the valley. And not only did he kind of come after me and ask for one-on-one visits late night, and I had time because I, I didn't have friends. I was lonely. So looking back, loneliness is a real uh, gift. It's, a gift. it's like having two extra bedrooms in your house. That's, that's a gift of space, of hospitality in your schedule, in your life to invite people in. And so my loneliness could say yes, and Neener's invited me into his world. He recruited me into the underground. And then when they got out of jail, he'd call me in the middle night. And my calling came through my phone buzzing at 1 a.m. And I'd get up and go to gang meetings where guys were pretty sketched out by a white guy pulling up in the middle of the night and walking up the back steps to a gang meeting. But he would say, hey, everyone, check this out. This is the pastor. Pastor, that's a bad word for me still. I'm still working out my issues with the church growing up. I'm like, I'm not a pastor. I'm a, I'm a grassroots activist theologian. What's that? You're the pastor, dog. We never had one. God sent us you. Really? Yeah, that's kind of cute. That's kind of funny. And then after years, I thought, maybe I am called. And maybe the calling doesn't necessarily come through a bishop laying their hands on me in front of a service, but maybe happens at this gang meeting at 3 a.m. Oh, yeah, that sounds like the stuff that happens in the book of Acts. Maybe I'm catching on to that Jesus that I said I wanted to follow growing up. So it was gang members that invited me into following Jesus, kind of against my will. And so while I was shepherding a lot of these gang members and trying to raise funds and learn how to be a pastor, a shepherd, which is what pastor means, that's how I reclaimed as a shepherd to the lost sheep, the ones that society says, we don't want you. Live in the projects. We don't want you. We're going to send police over there and arrest you. We don't want you. We're going to throw you to prison. To shepherd the unwanted, I could embrace that, but Neener's, he went off to prison, and that's different. A lot of people, as we've been speaking and teaching, they think jail and prison is synonymous. Jail is in every county. Jail is where you go when you're arrested. Jail is the best place to meet people in your community. Everyone that Jesus would want to meet in your county are probably in jail, because law enforcement will find the ones who are broken and hurting and self-medicating and lost and outcast and homeless 
law enforcement is the first arm of outreach, and they'll put them in one place, so the church should just flood that place. But as you're awaiting judgment and sentenced, when you're sentenced, you're punished no longer to the cross. You're just buried alive. And prisons are more than warehouses. They're more like landfills. And the United States, by the way, has a little bit of a problem. It's not, well, we've always had prisons. Not really. United States has a little bit of a problem with throwing away human beings. We incarcerate 2.5 million of our own people. It's more than communist China ever did, Soviet Russia, any nation in the history of the world. We've got a little bit of a problem. And so we have this massive underground, this human landfill of human beings, and most of us never know about them. We don't know them. We don't know the hell, the people that are in the hell that we've created. But luckily, some of these guys started writing letters to me. And Nieners was one of them. He and I exchanged letters for about seven and a half years, and Nieners was my professor and my mentor, knowing under this underground world as he suffered through it and as our faith grew in friendship. And so I want to invite you to meet my friend, Nieners, who has been my teacher of the scriptures and about where Jesus moves in the shadows. And to, I want Nieners to invite you into this world that I couldn't go into in solitary confinement, which is the prison within the prison, the bottom of the system. If you'll please welcome Nieners. I thought I wasn't going to be nervous because it's the second one, but man, I'm hella nervous still. Um, I, uh, I want to thank you guys again for allowing us to be able to speak here. You know, I, uh, I speak in a lot of Presbyterian churches with a lot of what I always say, young elderly women and elderly folks. And um, so this is new. There's only like about 20 or 30 of them, and this is kind of pretty packed. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I, uh, I look at these letters and these pictures, and I'm just like, man. And I look at the picture of me with all the tattoos on my face, and I'm like, damn, I can't believe that was me. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, as Chris said, I spent seven and a half years of my life in prison. That's just a, percentage, a little bit of my time incarcerated. I spent five and a half years of that time in solitary confinement, which is the whole shoe. I don't know what they call it up here, but it's the hole in there. And it's a, it's a little cell that holds you for 23 hours a day. And if you're lucky, you get one hour out five, days, five times a week, 20 hours a month. So I stayed there for five and a half years. I... Uh, I watched my daughter grow from right there. I watched my family disappear. Two brothers pass away. Watched my mom get deported. And I literally watched her, but felt it in this little cell that's all white, white sheets, guards that are very rude, hearing the cries of another man as he's trying to slice, hang himself or slice his wrists. Or another man who's crying because he didn't get mail. Or some other man spraying feces on the windows or walls because uh, he's losing his mind. So I did five and a half years in there. 23 hours a day, I was in my cell. So I read a lot. 
And in Washington State, they have a level system that once you get your level four, you get the privilege of having a little TV behind a plexiglass with PBS, with some shows. So when I was in the hole, I got to my level four. That's when you can order store and commissary and watch this little show. I was watching this show one time late at night, and I mean, like I told Chris, I, w I wasn't really religious. This was like two years before I got released. Um, I'm still trying to figure myself out, still working on myself, didn't know what, what I was going to do when I got out. I just not wanted to come home. And I knew after hearing so many homies' stories from hearing Monsters, Batmans, all these other homies that are in the, cell, in the, in the same IMU with me, there's about 20 or 30 guys, and we're lined up. We don't see each other face to face. We're lined next to each other. After hearing their stories, just wondering, like, man, their stories are similar to mine. So I, uh, I stayed up late one night. I'm riding Chris, drinking some coffee, watching this PBS show on uh, this little 16-year-old girl named, who kills her John. She was being traffic pimped out. She kills her John. And um, 16 years old, she kills her John. I know at 16, I was already serving a juvenile life sentence. So, and I seen her, I, I, I seen a little bit of her history and um, she uh, had similar stories I did too. At 16, she gets sentenced to life. I'm like, damn. And at that time, I remember that at 13, I had my first kid. So my daughter was that girl's age. So many memories came to me. I remember when I would try to go to school and try to attend a school where it was all whites. I was the only Mexican in my school. I didn't, I, my mom registered me late one day because she had to go to work. And, um, or she had to do something, I think probably go serve some guy because my mom sold drugs. So she registered me late. So she made me wait for a week before she registered me. So the school that only accepted that dual languages couldn't take me because it was full. So I went to Lincoln. Well, at Lincoln, I didn't speak English. So the teacher couldn't know how, didn't know how to call on me. The teacher would look at me and be like, I don't know how to help you. I don't know what to do for you. Go, go sit in the office. I'm like, the, the F did I do? Like, it's not my fault I can't speak English. I'm here to learn. You know, my neighborhood was bad. I, 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 I wanted to be a basketball player. My whole life was like, I'm going to go to Duke. Like, I want to go play basketball. I mean, I was five, I was short, but Muggsy Bogues was 5'4", and he was dunking, so I'm like, I'm going to do this, you know, I'm going to do this. He's doing it for Charlotte Hornets, I'm doing this, I'm doing this for Duke. So, um, didn't happen. Uh, I ended up going home, you know, my sister, my sister would always tell me, you know, she'd be like, you know, you, my sister's one year older than me, she would be like, you know, you need to, you need to learn English, you need to learn English. So she would give me books that she would steal from school, like the map. She stole this map. And to me, 
I thought it was the end of the world. I, you know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't get the privilege of seeing the globe, so I just seen the map, and that's why I wanted to get the furthest away from my neighborhood. I just seen my homie Spanky's head get blown off. I seen my homie Sparky get. I wanted to get away, like, and the farthest was Duke, so that's why I said North Carolina. I'm going to Duke, <laughs> like I'm going to the end of the world. So, um, my sister, my sister would do this for me, and I was like, man, my sister so badly wanted me out of the neighborhood. She knew what was going to come of it. What comes of it with every. 10, 11, 12-year-old men out of, our, out of our, 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 our neighborhood becomes gang members. Then what happens next? Juvenile hall, crimes, juvenile hall, jail, prison, and so on, et cetera, et cetera. So I didn't get that. I didn't, uh, I remember walking home. I didn't get a chance to learn English at school. I learned it at home. So I remember walking home and some guy calling me a name from a different street. I mean, it wasn't even that far from my house. His, his, uh, his place of living was probably where that podium's at, and I lived right here. And he called me a name. So I remember going to my neighborhood and talking to the main guy of our neighborhood and be like, hey, this guy just called me a name. He's like, but, you know, he's saying all this in Spanish. So he's like, what you going to do? You know, instead of telling me, hey, like, it's going to be fine. You know, just forget it. He gave me a gun. I'm 10 years old. Do you guys remember what you were doing when you were 10? Probably playing dodgeball or something, you know, <laughs> playing school. Not me. I walked over there, and I shot this man point blank in the face. I walked home, gave the gun back to the man. Grab, you guys know what Schwinn bikes are, right? The old Schwinn bikes? Well, I went home, and I just started sanding my Schwinn bike down because I wanted to fix my lowrider bike. I was so happy. I got, I was like, I got, I got rims for my bike now. Hear sirens all over. I'm, I'm 10 years old. I don't know what I did. Getting cuffed up, going to juvie, getting sent to a mental ward, trying to figure out what's wrong with this guy. Twelve comes out. Thirteen, I have my kid. About 13 and a half, 14, I get shot six times, four times in the back, leg and hip, live. 14, get sent off to juvenile. Uh, around 12, I, I kind of missed. At 12, I get charged for hanging my stepdad. So 13, I'm back out on the streets. 14, I get sent to juvenile life. Juvenile life in Washington State is they hold you to your 21. So I'm off into juvenile institution to maximum security until I'm 21. 17, I escape. He tried as an adult, he shipped to prison, 17 years old, sitting in Washington State Penitentiary. I sit in Washington State Penitentiary and look at all these other guys that are there. Same dudes that I'm sitting in with years later. From Perico to Mouser to Sapo, same guys I was sitting with. I was 32 years old in that IMU cell, watching that PBS show. So I started to tell myself, man, God, like, what the, what's up with this dog? Like, give me a chance. Let me, let, let me have a chance. Look, I grew up with someone always telling me, chance is only for favor of prepared mind. So I was telling God, I'm ready, I'm prepared. Give me a shot. Society wasn't giving it to me. Nobody else would. I'm like, can you give me a shot? The whole time, I'm writing letters with Chris, you know, 
seven years. He wrote me every week for seven and a half years, every week, with a $9.90 money order. So when I hear these stories and watch this PBS and reflect on my past, I'm asking God some deep questions. And I'm getting some news that I'm not going to be able to see my daughter. My release date's changed. I'm being released from solitary confinement. From where I've never touched a man unless he's putting cuffs on me and taking me to a yard that's probably as big as my cell to use a phone to call this man. So I'm getting released to society with like that. So I'm asking God, what's going on here? The odds are stacked against us. Like, how are we going to do this? And I gave up. I, I stopped fighting. I gave up. I was like, I'm good. I've done everything my way. I'm going to do it your way now. So from there forward, I uh, started reading the Bible. Started asking, passing scriptures back and forth with Chris. And I started listening to their stories, to the homie stories, and having a different connection with them. So as I seen their stories and I started seeing that they would never get any type of love from society, from the community, from their family, from their friends, I started being like, man, this isn't right. I don't feel right doing this. I don't feel right getting my commissary bag with candies. You guys know what fireballs are? So I did, I looked on the store list to see what would produce the most candies so that I can help out my homies. So I grabbed Fireballs because 15 of them came in there. And I grabbed a bag of coffee. And like I said, my mom sold drugs as, since I was a kid. My mom's been selling drugs that I knew how to make vendors. You guys know what vendors are? Well, I used to fold vendors and put cocaine in them for my mom and make a 10, $5 sack, 20 sack, 15 sack, 30, like junior ball. I knew all the numbers. And I was a kid. I learned math selling drugs. So... <laughs> I was like, I'm going to make this for my boys. My boys are all in here. So I grabbed the coffee, made my vendors. The fireballs, you guys know they're pretty hard. And then the little plastic bag. So I sat there for hours just hitting the floor with them. Until <laughs> they smashed down into powder in the little bag. Fifteen of those, put them aside. Hit up Monster in the top tier and be like, hey, Monster, check this out. Get your lineas ready. Get your lines ready. Hit up all the homies to get their lines ready. So Monster usually kept point because he could see the guards when they come into the tier. So we sit there, we pull back, get out of our jumpsuit, pull off our socks, our underwears, put our jumpsuit back on, tie it around our waist, hold the sock with the comb. I pull out every string. Every string on my underwears and every string on my sock. And I twine it. And then I'd tie them together. And I'd grab my comb. And um, if you could put it at the prison cell. This little crack on the bottom of the door is the closest thing we have to freedom. That little crack right there is what brings freedom in, which is the letters that Chris used to write me every week with a money order. So this little crack was the only connection I had to my homies. So I sat there, I'd get on my knees, and Macho would sit up there, and I'd sit there, and I'd grab my comb, tie it with the string, wrap, let it, give it some line, 
It's crazy. <laughs> Think about fly fishing. <laughs> but I, they call it fishing. So I would sit there and I would just throw it out. Sometimes it hit the, the door and come right back. Or sometimes I slam my fingers in the door and be like, oh, shoot. Be hot. But I do it. I was like, these are my boys. So I shoot it out about as far as to the podium. My man down the block would shoot it down to the thing, would connect. And then I'd pull him in. Monster would be like, you guys are connected. Pull him in. Remember, my little packages are right here on the desk. So I'd grab my little one and one shoot him to the homie. I did this for every homie on my block, in my cell, my tier. And we're not face-to-face. We're side-by-side. So I really can't see how far they're out there. So I did this for every one of my homies. Did all this for them. And it was just felt really good. Felt really good. So after we would all grab our, after everybody had their little packages, we'd all be like, everybody good? Yeah, yeah. They'd be good looking out. We'd call it bubbly time. We'd get our coffee ready and our fireball and we'd toast. Like, salute. Chug it. Maybe it was just one shot a week, but it was a lot. It was that dose of love. And so, through the little slit under there, my brother C right here, that's how our friendship began, our relationship began, because most of my time was in solitary confinement. So I'm going to bring up Chris back up here. So the story Nina's just told you, he, he was telling me for the first time when he was in a white jumpsuit, shaved head, in a rare visit we got in solitary confinement, speaking through the glass, through a little uh, crackling intercom between us. And at, just like you, I, I, I couldn't picture it, so I just had to use my imagination, but he, he pulled out his little pen and he drew his parish, his community, in the palm of his hand, this whole IMU cell, and put it up against the glass. And he's thinking about his community. I mean, these words like parish, community, these aren't part of his vocabulary, but I'm, I'm a dorky white guy that you know, sits in on seminary classes for fun. Um, and as he's describing these little pink packets coming under the door, I mean, I can't help but think about my years of putting a wafer on my tongue in church. And right as I'm thinking about that, Nina says, you got to understand, Chris, that's, I know it's not vegetables. We're not like doing the ministry we want to do together when we get out, which he who's feeling a call to be a pastor. I know, but we're kind of starting in here, bro. So when that candy comes in there, I know it's just candy, but you got to understand these guys have nothing. That's, that's love coming into their cell. And I heard that with a capital L. And I started thinking, that's a sacramental imagination. He's, he's seeing the, 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 the crude substance becoming the body and the blood of God and the love of heaven sliding through the cracks of the walls of this world, entering hell itself. And I started thinking, oh, well, we can't really call it communion, you know, as we learn in church, that that's just a priestly thing. You have to go to seminary for that. But I thought, no, what if it's not like communion, but what if that is? What if Eucharist? What if parish? What if outreach? What if church is happening right there in the belly of hell in our, in our time, in our society? And so this started really getting me reflecting on what is church anyway? That was, I thought it was something I was running from, and now I'm doing church, I'm speaking in churches. And I've, and I've come to, if you want to go to the next slide, the found, Jesus, what is Jesus' imagination for church? Because as Christendom, the kind of 
European and American Christ, Christian society is crumbling. Everyone's scrambling, I, I feel, to either recover old traditions or reinvent church, reemerge church, re-this, re-that church. Jesus' imagination is, he says to Peter, well, what was Peter's real name? Simon. Simon. And what does Peter mean? Rock. So even the, the church begins with Jesus consorting with folks that have kind of a secondary street name. He goes, check this out, Rock. My movement, my assembly, my crew, my posse, however you want to translate ecclesia, he wasn't talking about the building. He says, my ecclesia, my assembly, my people, my movement, my mission, I'm basing it on you. So it's definitely not a building, otherwise he'd be toast. my mission is based on you, and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. It's a bad translation in some Bibles to say the gates of hell will not overcome it, as if hell were the overcoming force, kind of at the ramparts of the church, and we need to be mighty fortresses, our God kind of theology. But no, Jesus is saying, no, hell has the gates. Church has no gates. We're the movement of God. We have no boundaries. Hell has gates, and they're trying to hold on to the captives. So the whole mission of the church is to defy and invade hell. Hades, the realm of the dead, the realm of the shadows, the underworld. And Jesus doesn't say, after you die, Peter. So Jesus' imagination of Hades and hell is not an afterlife thing. It's a spiritual vision for, what's the, for the realm of the dead and the reign of death and chaos and evil in this world. So Jesus says, this is our mission. The church is not a place where you go to go to heaven. The church is the mission of heaven on earth penetrating into the very depths of society. And so the light may go deeper and deeper into the darkness until hell is no more. So this for me has been the re- regeneration that I saw in solitary confinement through Niners. And Niners re-gifted back to me, what is the church? And now I'm more excited about the church than ever. And so in the same way that Niners would use the material in his underwear and his socks and to slide it through cracks and connect with people he's never seen, and then that connection happens. And that money was even coming from churches that were praying for him through his emails that he sent to me. We find these ways to get through the cracks of the world. And this is the ecclesia. This is the church. This is the creative new taste so that the flavor and the fire of God can land on the tongues and the hearts of those who thought they were forgotten and damned. I want to be part of this. And what we're doing now with Underground Ministries, since Nieners is out, we're now co-directors. We feel pretty excited that we're not like a pastor helping inmates. We're co-directors together because we want to help more people throughout prison and underground and more people in faith congregations start to put those lines together and create those relationships that resurrect all of our faith and that tie our worlds together until the gates of hell are no more. Until those prison walls, no matter how big we thick them, how thick we build them, no matter how thick the blocks in our neighborhoods are between racial difference and economic difference and political difference, that these lines of friendship these humble threads of of letters and kindness and laughter where you don't have to have all the answers and you can use some bad words and you can risk being your real self and you meet someone else like that and then the body of Christ grows. That God's already in the underground. He's already in Hades and we get to be a part of it. We get to get tied into it. And so we invite you to, if you want to learn more about what we do, undergroundministries.org, if you want to join our financial support team, we'd love that. But even more importantly, Right here in Grand Rapids is Crossroads Prison Ministry who invited us to come out. And this is what these guys do around the nation is they connect churches with thousands of people in prison. And so I invite you to go to their table, find out a way that you can start writing somebody 
not just to help them. Don't do that. Meet Jesus. Jesus says, you visited me. He's not saying, go visit the prisoners. Jesus wants to be found there. And so meet Jesus. And maybe your faith that you've been wanting to say yes to your whole life will become more three-dimensional as it did for me. And you'll meet more of your brothers and your sisters. Um, until hell is no more. And our story and our theology and our sacraments get even more and more brilliant. So I've just asked Nina's if you can close us in prayer. Lord, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for the blessing of just being able to be in the presence of you guys, the presence of you, of your mercy, Lord. I just ask you to forgive us for our sins and lead us not into temptation. I just pray for all the homies who are locked up and all the homies who don't have anybody writing them or the funds to, to, to get any type of stamps. I just lift this all up in your name, Jesus. Amen. Because it is Jesus who told us in Matthew 25, he said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. And friends, I was in prison and you came to visit me. Well, go in peace and we'll see you next week.